children, your words for this evening are be ready, watch, work, wait, servants, masters, house and household, and of course, Jesus, all right? Be ready, watch, work, wait, servant, master, or the plural of those words, house, household, and Jesus. Now, for those of you that need a little uh, help with your Bible trivia, the next time you sit down as a family to play Bible trivia, here's a fun fact. Uh, The return of Christ is mentioned 318 times in the New Testament. It's actually mentioned 200 in 216 of of the 260 chapters within the New Testament. It is a very prominent subject. And in our passage tonight that John just read, um, Jesus says we all need to be prepared for it. Actually, he says we need to be ready. It's to be anticipated because it's not something that's just probable. It's not something that's just simply plausible. It is, in fact, certain Jesus is going to come again. We know this because of the realities of His incarnation and the realities of His resurrection and ascension all point to the reality of His return. And because of that reality, we need to be ready. Because of that certainty, we must, in fact, be ready. And that readiness, we're going to hear, involves activity. It involves an active anticipation. It involves uh, actively waiting. And I've put it this way in our outline tonight. We need to, first of all, be ready and watch expectantly. We need to be responsible and work faithfully. And then finally, we, we don't need to be reckless, but rather we need to wait selflessly, right? Be ready, be responsible, and don't be reckless. And as is our custom, let's pray before we uh, go any further this evening. Father, by Your Spirit, grant power to the preaching of Your Word. Give us ears to ear, hear and eyes to see. Grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding the return of our Lord Jesus. Would you awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us and then please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us through your gospel. As always, I'm weak and needy, unfit for this task to which you've called me. So I pray, Father, that this evening that you would grant me grace, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would support me and Strengthen me that I might be a pure channel of your grace and do something good for you this evening. Help me to communicate clearly and fluently and with fervency and with grace for the sake of Christ and his people, his church. And I pray these things in his name. Amen. And amen. Well, if you've been with us, and even if you haven't, uh, our setting has not changed. The circumstances have not changed from last week to this week, having just addressed the disciples regarding the danger of spiritual hypocrisy and how to combat that hypocrisy, someone approached Jesus. 
And in the words of Dale Ralph Davis, this individual wanted Jesus to do something for him, to solve a problem that he had, but he did not desire Jesus to change his heart. And so Jesus in those, you'll remember I said this, but in, in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter, he provides, or, or these verses in chapter 12, uh, in, in the ones we looked at last week, provided an illustration from verses 2 and 3 of earlier in the chapter. And what Jesus did was revealed what had been, ma- had been covered up. He had brought into light that which had been uh, in darkness. Uh, he revealed that which had been hidden and he announced in public what had only been mentioned in that gentleman's house up to that point. And he Jesus revealed the man's sin of covetousness or greed, as well as his sin of discontent. And in the process, he said that no matter, it's not a matter of what we have, it's not a matter of how much we have, but it's our attitude toward what we have and our attitude toward how much we have. And what we do with what God has given us is sometimes a matter of faith. It's a matter of our faith and trust in who He is and what He's given us and what He has purposed to do with that which He's given us. But also at times it has to do with our hearts. It has to do with what we value. If our hearts are directed toward the Lord and directed toward heaven... That's where our treasure will be. If our hearts are directed toward the world and and value what the world has to offer, then that is where our treasure is going to be. And so his encouragement was to seek first his kingdom. And and why did he say that? It's, It's because if we seek the temporary things and mistakenly believe that those temporary things are going to provide what we actually need and are going to last, we're wrong. And we're going to miss His kingdom. But if we'll seek His kingdom first, then He will provide those temporary things that we need. So in other words, we can seek earthly things over the kingdom and not get either one, or we can seek his kingdom and receive both. And of course, he wrapped up by saying that ultimately, Christ's call is for us to come out of spiritual poverty and into spiritual wealth, into the richness of of God. And we read from Paul's words, he says, though he, Christ, was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we might, by his poverty, might become rich. And he's lavished us super abundantly with love and saving grace and the good gifts of salvation. He's also lavished us with material blessings more than you and I can count. And so the questions we asked were, so how much more do we think He he needs to give us? How much more do we need? How much is enough? Because the reality is we all have more than we could ever ask or imagine in the Lord Jesus Christ. So out of the surplus of that love and out of grace and out of those good gifts of salvation and creation, we can, can and should be rich toward Him. 
But while we stopped there for the sake of our study, for the sake of time, and we couldn't just continue to move on, uh, Jesus did continue to move on, right? We, we interrupted Him midstream. And so nothing has changed. The, the setting is still the same. He's still conversing with the disciples. And here in verses 35 to 48, He comes back and He reiterates a little bit of what He said back in chapter 6 at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If you were with us or if you've listened online, you know that in, in, back in March when we were in this chapter, uh, He exhorted the disciples to be ready. But the context then was he, he wanted them to be ready on account of the Son of Man, on account of Him, because they were following Him, because they were devoted to Him, because they were trusting in Him, because that, that devotion and that trust and that faith and that following of Him was going to come at a cost. Right? They were going to be poor, they were going to be hungry and suffer and be ostracized and be hated. They were going to have their reputations ruined all because they were identifying with Him. And so they needed to count the cost. Things were going to go downhill from there, so to speak. To say that it was going to be easy is, I mean, it's an understatement, particularly for the 12, especially the, the 11 who would lose their lives on account of Him and for His sake and for the sake of the gospel. But He also said that in the midst of that, they were going to be able to rejoice. And if you remember, they were going to be able to rejoice and jump up and down in triumphant joy in the midst of that persecution because of what was to come. It was because their ultimate reward was going to come at the consummation of the kingdom. In other words, the best was not yet present. The best was yet to come. They weren't, they weren't to rest in that which was immediate and temporary. They were to rest in what was delayed and yet eternal. And so here in chapter 12, this, the exhortation is much the same. Jesus has made it clear and had made it clear, right, that the kingdom had been announced. The kingdom had been inaugurated. The kingdom was here. And it wasn't going to be earned or merited, or even built by the citizens of that kingdom. The kingdom was something that the citizens were to receive. It was something that was going to be given to them. And so in verse 31, he told the disciples last week, as citizens, they were to seek that kingdom, as we've already said. They were to set their hearts and pursue the kingdom. They were to submit themselves to his kingship, his lordship, where he where he would reign, and, and he would, they would submit to that reign, and where they lived, and where they worked, where they worshipped. But he also made it clear that while the kingdom had been initiated, it hadn't yet been consummated. It was not yet in its full and final and complete form. That was yet to come. In other words, while the kingdom was now, it would be complete later. And that consummation would take place upon his return. And until then, he said they needed to be ready and watch expectantly. Waiting was something, if you go back and you read through the Old Testament, you realize that waiting was something that Jews were very, very accustomed to and not really good at. And we don't give them a hard time because we don't do it well either. We don't like to wait 
Because what happens is prolonged waiting begins to breed complacency and apathy and discouragement and despondency. And ultimately, as we wait, it's, it's possible for us to surrender to hopelessness. And so Jesus used two parables in verses 35 to 40 to, to deal with this struggle with waiting and to encourage readiness. In the first parable, here in 35 to 38, Jesus, actually the two parables are in 35 to 40. The first two par, uh, parables, or the first of the two parables is here in 35 to 38. And Jesus encouraged them to be like servants of a household whose master or whose homeowner was away at a wedding feast. And we have to understand that wedding feasts in that day could last up to seven days or more. And so those who were attending the wedding feast could be there the entire time, the entire seven days or more, or they could come and go as they needed. And so those who attended, in terms of their ETA back home, it was unknown. They could arrive at any moment. They could arrive at any day, on any day, and at any time during the day. They could arrive early in the morning, or they could arrive sometime in the middle of the night, or in the wee hours of the morning, depend on how you consider or what you consider the hours from midnight to 6 a.m. And he says, regardless, they were to be ready for his return. They were to be ready for the master's return. And the language he uses, they, they should gird up their loins. And basically that means that they would take their robe like this one and they would wad it up and stick it in their sash. And that would enable them to be ready to work at a moment's notice or they could take off and run if necessary. But he wanted them to be ready. They were to be dressed and ready to fulfill their responsibilities at a moment's notice. They were to be dressed, they were to, to have their lamps, right, the wicks trimmed and the oil filled in their lamps, so if he did come in the middle of the night, right, he would come to a, a lit house. He wouldn't stumble in the dark. They were to be looking out the windows, and they were to be standing at the doors, and they were to be able to, to move at the minute they heard a knock, to answer as quickly as possible, no one could be asleep. No one could be preoccupied. Nobody could leave their post. Definitely couldn't leave the house. They were there, ready to be responsive. They were alert and awake. They were to remain on watch. Again, acting as if at any moment he was to show up. And this was to be perpetual. Right? There's this perpetual eagerness, anticipating his arrival, and, and a willingness, that perpetual willingness to respond appropriately because he was the master of the house. And notice the absolutely incredible response of the master when he does arrive. In verse 37, Jesus says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline a table and he will come and serve them. We watch a lot of British television and I've never seen a master come home to his, his uh, household or to his castle and turn around and, and put on servant's clothes, 
tell all the servants to sit at the table, go into the kitchen and cook a meal and bring that to the servants and then clean up all the dishes and clean up and do the dishes after they've finished eating. It doesn't happen. The story almost seems unrealistic because no master would have ever done that. Pick up his robes, tuck it in his sash, and end up serving Humbling, humbling himself to serve. And so it would have been this exercise of unimaginable gratitude. And it would have astounded those listening. And it would have astounded the servants who were served. And again, we would think, that can't be a realistic story, but we need to remember who's telling the story. The one who's telling the story had actually humbled himself and taken on the likeness of man. He is, he's the one who had said, I've come to serve, not to be served. And shortly, we're going to watch him, and we're going to watch him tie up his robe, cinch it in a sash. We're going to watch him take a cloth and wipe their feet, feed him a, ma- a meal, all before he dies for them as their substitute on a cross. The story is not realistic, or unrealistic. It's realistic because of the one who we see here. Listen to these words of Philip Ryken. When we know the rest of the gospel story, We can see that Jesus put himself into this parable. We can also see what a blessing it is to serve him as our master. Jesus has worn the garments of our servitude. He has served us to his very death. He has invited us to sit down at his table, as he will tonight, where he feeds our needy souls. Now we wait for him to come again, ready and waiting for that day when we will enter the fullness of the master's joy. That is what we're looking forward to. That is what we're anticipating. That is what we're watching and ready for him to return because we know of what is to come. But unfortunately, there are many who aren't ready. Right? We know that there are many who aren't ready. There are many who aren't watching expectantly. And when he comes, they're going to be caught off guard. And it's going to come at a great price. And that's the, the point here of this second parable in verse 39. He says, but, na- but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Now, he has switched metaphors, all right? There is a switch here. And where he once was the master of the house, he's now the thief. And we know that because it's a common metaphor in Scripture. We see it in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3, and in uh, Revelation 3 and Revelation 16. And the point is, he's going to come unexpectedly, and it's going to come at a loss for some. And that loss is going to be great. As he said back in chapter 6, there are many who are already rich and full and satisfied, they're laughing, they have friends and reputations, and they've got all the health and wealth and prosperity they could ever desire. They have their positions and they have their prestige. They have it all now. 
They have what they value. Their best life is now. But if you remember, we said that is not a good thing. For their best life to be now is not a good thing because there will become a day, there will be a day when the Son of Man returns. He's going to return and He's going to judge both the living and the dead. And those not in Christ will be weighed and measured and found wanting. They will discover that they have what they valued or that they have placed their value in the wrong things and their lack of trust in Him and their lack of looking to Him for their salvation and will ultimately lead to His not professing them before the Father. In other words, when He comes and judgment begins, they will stand before the Father without a mediator. And they will have to not only give an account, but pay for their sins on their own. So let me ask a few questions before we move on. Are you waiting expectantly for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you anticipate His coming? Do you live as if it could happen at any moment? Do you, like the Apostle John, say, Come, Lord Jesus? Is it the desire of your heart? Are you ready? Or are you not? Do you scoff at the idea of Christ's return? Is the idea of judgment and the need of a Savior just condescending in your mind, is it, is it offensive to you? Jesus foretold of His death and resurrection. And He died and rose again. He also foretold of His coming again. We can be certain of that day. And there will be great rejoicing for those who have placed their faith and trust in Him. But it will be a day of devastation for those who aren't. The consequences will be permanently fixed. But while there is today, there is hope. While there is this moment, there is hope. And you can be ready for His return by repenting of your sin and turning to faith in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord. You will not be disappointed. You will be saved. Come to Him and you will not be cast out. And that day will be a day of rejoicing for you as well. Well, in verse 41, Peter asks a really interesting question. And if you've read through this passage, you know that and have probably even wrestled with it. He says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And there's a great deal of debate, no doubt, regarding who's he talking about, right? We, want to, we think, okay, now is he talking about everybody in the crowd and then, or, or is he talking, first, is he talking about the disciples for us? And then is for all, all of the crowd, or is the us, the twelve, and the all, the disciples? Um, I, 
I fall on the side of it's the disciples and the 12 because we look back at verse 22 and he's been talking to the disciples and we haven't seen that change um, and about what, what kind of what follows, but a, but a good argument might convince me otherwise and so if you have one, that's fine. But notice what happens here. Um, the ambiguity of the question isn't helped by Jesus' response, really. Because he doesn't answer the question specifically, but what he does do is ask a question in return, which, you know, that's just what he did. Right? He would ask the question and put them on a spot. So as he did, he, he did what he often does, and so he asks, he moves, as he asks the question, he moves from exhorting them to be ready to being responsible. And so they move from watching to now, he, he moves from watching to working, so he says, be responsible and faithfully work. Look at verse 42. He says, when, uh, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now he's returned Back to the original metaphor, but he's added a character in the story. And that character is a household manager who basically was a slave, but a slave or another servant, but a servant with authority. And this manager had been given the responsibility of the other servants, particularly in regard to the meals. While the master was away, this household manager was to make sure all the other servants received their allotment for food. In other words, he was responsible for making sure everybody was fed while the master was gone. He was a steward of the food. And simply put, Jesus said that if this faithful and wise steward did his job well, he'd get a promotion. And the fact that Jesus doesn't answer the question specifically allows us to have a couple of applications that we can, we can look at. The first applies to all the disciples in general. Jesus is telling all of them, if we see it this way, Jesus was telling all of them to be faithful and wise stewards of the gifts that the Lord had given them in the midst of the already and the not yet. All of the spiritual blessings, all the physical blessings, and all we have to do is look back at what he's been teaching since chapter 10 to be really practical and to get an idea of what he's speaking about. Right? Remember, loving our neighbor, spending time with Jesus and listening to his word, praying, living consistently, rejecting and combating hypocrisy, being rich toward God, laying up treasures in heaven, giving what we have an extra to those in need. So whether it's the blessings of faith or the blessings of the knowledge of truth or of knowing and being known by the Father or being in the presence of Jesus or our time or our money or our material possessions, they were all gifts that were to be used faithfully and wisely for themselves but also for the sake of others. In other words, they weren't to sit idly by waiting expectantly, right? Or, or I'm sorry, watching expectantly. They were to be faithfully involved. And the second applies just specifically to the 12. So we have all the disciples in here. The second uh, op, or, uh, 
The second application would be for the 12, right? For those, or at least the 11, right? Um, but, but it's important that Judas be there, and we'll get to that in a minute. But particularly for the 11, right? They were the ones upon which the foundation of the church would be laid, right? They were the ones that the church were going to gather around and, and to hear their teaching as the church was being formed in Acts 2. They were the ones whose teaching was going to be the once for all faith handed down to the saints. And so not only were they responsible for the same blessings as the other disciples, but they were responsible to feed the other servants within the household of God. They and the elders and pastors who would follow them as they were given the authority of the local church or to serve the local church as under-shepherds, and as well as those that would, would come alongside them and, and would teach doctrine and, and things of sound doctrine. They all had the responsibility to give their care and, and to make sure that others had their portion of food, the Word of God, at the proper time. In verses 43 and 44, and in verses 43 and 44, Jesus was clear that when He returns, those who are being faithful and wise in their stewardship of those gifts would be given more responsibility in the life to come. Again, a fascinating thought, is it not? Serving here and serving in between the already and the not yet Faithfully serving the kingdom, and when the king returns, not moving to a position of, again, being idle in the kingdom, but serving in the kingdom, the, the serving continues. Being blessed, you know, being faithful and wise now would lead to being blessed and and serving in the kingdom of the not yet. And brothers and sisters, here in the West, um, we've been blessed not only with excess, excess in the material things that we possess, but we've been given the ex extraordinary privilege of being free and having the unhindered access to the Word of God. And we must ask ourselves if we are being faithful and wise in our stewardship of not only our material things, but the spiritual blessings that are ours. Are we good stewards? Are we using all that God has given us for our growth in godliness and using it to our advantage? And are we using it for our neighbor's advantage? Or are we squandering the gifts that He's given us? Do we take advantage of the spiritual freedoms we have or do we take them for granted? Do we seek to give out of that superabundance of money and possessions and access to the gospel and the word of God to those in need? Or do we hoard it all for ourselves? And elders, 
and small group leaders, Bible study leaders, we must ask, are we feeding the sheep of God? Are we making sure that everyone who's a part of our community of faith is receiving their allotment of the food of God's Word? We're called to be faithful and wise in our nourishment of this congregation. If he came back today, would we be found faithful? Today, the answer is yes. May it always be that, that way for us. So the exhortation has been to be ready. Watch expectantly, be responsible, work faithfully. And in verses 45 to 48, he says, don't be reckless. Wait selflessly. He says, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. My daughter called this week and shared an experience that she had at work uh, in her new job. She and another new hire uh, were the only ones left in the office uh, late uh, one afternoon. And uh, while Anna saw it as an op- opportunity to work faithfully and to prove her appreciation for her job and, and hopefully to earn further responsibility, her coworker saw it as an opportunity to take advantage of her free time and, and uh, you know, no one was around, so no one was going to hold her accountable, so she had a list of other things that she went about doing. And that's the same scenario that Jesus presents uh, of this servant whose master was away. He knew, what, he knew what the master wanted him to do. He knew what the master had told him to do and what the master had told him not to do. He, had been, he was aware of what he had been charged with. But rather than fulfill the master's will, right, the servant began to do what he wanted to do. And he took advantage of the master's absence. And not only did he take advantage of the absence, but instead of taking the, we assume the, the allotment of food and drink that he was to give to the other servants, he ate it and drank it himself to the point of excess where he's laying on the floor, sloppy drunk. And then, to make matters worse, he decided to beat his fellow servants. Obviously, to gain and exercise control through manipulation and power. But Jesus said the master was going to show up. He was going to show up at an unexpected time and this servant was going, this reckless servant was going to be caught by surprise. And things were not going to be good because the master was going to deal with him accordingly. He said there were servants who, there are servants who act out of ignorance. Right? They make decisions and do things because they don't know any better. 
And yet, because even though, I'll say even though they've done it out of ignorance, and even though they've done it because they didn't know any better, they still have done something they shouldn't do or haven't done what they should have done, and they've done it to the detriment of others and to the, at the expense of others, and they're going to suffer the consequences. But those who knowingly and purposefully do what they shouldn't do and do what they're not supposed to do, particularly at the expense of others and to the detriment of others, they're also going to suffer the consequences, but theirs will be much more severe than the ignorant. In other words, the Lord is going to be perfectly just. And His punishment will always fit the crime. The more a person knows, the more that will be required of them. And why is that? Because the treasure of the gospel is to be valued and protected. It is a pearl of great worth that has been entrusted to us and should be treated as the treasure that it is. And living in a way that is contrary to the gospel, and living in a way that in which we're participating in and celebrating that which or for which Christ has died, that's not going to be tolerated. And Christ will not be mocked. He'll take care of his people. Jesus by no means is, is teaching that salvation can be merited or earned or lost based upon our works or our behavior. But he is saying that our actions betray us. He is saying that how we live reveals what is truly in our hearts. And this is where we have to remember Judas is one of these twelve. He's hearing this as one who is, is a part of, of the disciples. He, he is a part of the group. But we need to remember what we read in John 12. If you remember, after Mary anoints Jesus' feet with the ointment, the Lord Jesus says this. But Judas Iscariot, or John says this, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then here's John's commentary. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge over the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas' heart was revealed. And Jesus says, we all must heed the warning, right? And examine our own hearts. In Peter's words, we need to confirm our calling and election. Do, do our lives reflect a while the uh, cat's away, the mouse will play kind of attitude? Do we live selfishly 
and take advantage of others? Do we abuse our positions of influence and authority? Do we manipulate situations and people for our own benefit? And, and do we, again, do we withhold the good gifts that God has given us rather than sharing them with other people and withhold them at the expense or to the detriment of other people? Or do we serve others out of our abundance? And let me say this right before we close. Let me say this. To those of you who have been, I'm sorry to say that you've been manipulated. Um, you may have been mistreated. Uh, you may have been um, physically or spiritually abused by those who are professing believers and even worse still by those in pastoral leadership. or any, any authority within the church. And they've taken advantage of you and, and used or withheld the good gifts of God and it's been at your expense or detriment. I want you to know that that was a travesty. And it deeply saddens me. Those stories are far too common. And I want you to know that it saddens the Lord Jesus as well. And He will not be mocked. And while those who have perpetrated those offenses against you may continue to serve in capacities the same capacities. They're in those same positions. And, and it seems as though somehow they've avoided the consequences of their actions. Rest assured that what they've done has not been forgotten. Nor have their actions been forgotten. And the Lord Jesus says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. We say to you to find your solace and rest in Christ. He will bind up the broken heart. He will bind up your broken heart. And he will justly deal with those who have hurt you. Let me close with these words from Philip Ryken. These parables about servants and masters are some of the weightiest parables in the Gospels. They bring us face to face with our destiny to show us that we all need a Savior. For whether we are more or less ignorant, and whether we have been more or less faithful, we have all been neglectful of our stewardship. He goes on to say, who can say that we have always been at the ready or that we have made the best use of all the good things that God has given us or that today we are living in full expectation of the coming of Christ? 
But that is why we need a Savior. A Savior to suffer the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Jesus Christ is the true and faithful and wise servant who took all of our unfaithfulness to the cross. He took it upon Himself. He died on the cross and then buried it in the grave before coming back to life. Christianity is not a religion for faithful servants, but a gospel for unfaithful servants. And having done everything that needed to be done for our salvation, He calls us back to service. And to whom much is given, of Him shall be of him shall much be required. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious.